APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Martin Ponti, faculty in the School of Arts, Humanities, and Education. And today our conversation is about growing up bilingual. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Bjorn. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So just to start, can you share your experiences of growing up bilingual in the U.S.? Sure. This is a topic that I really enjoy talking about since it really describes who, who I am as a person. So I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and my family and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was about seven years old. And we moved to Brooklyn, specifically the Diker Heights area of Brooklyn, which I don't know if that's familiar to a lot of our listeners, uh, but that is a neighborhood in the southwest corner of Brooklyn. It was a very multilingual area, but predominantly Italian-American. So growing up there, there were some contradictions that would come up from a multilingual city would not necessarily, you would not necessarily experience. You know, one thing about New York, I've always heard that it is very multilingual. It's such a melting pot. There's a lot of people who have their original language is not English. <laughs> and then there's many people who learn a language. And so by living in New York and the boroughs, you probably do encounter more people who are bilingual or even multilingual. Yes, and, and that's precisely one of the contradictions that I want to bring up. At least when I was growing up, even though that was also the norm, there was hesitancy in speaking another language in public. So as a public language, it was not something that was necessarily seen as okay. So one of the anecdotes I have that I always remember and I always tell my students walking to school I remember going to school with a couple of friends uh, that were also Spanish speakers and English speakers, and I just started speaking Spanish. And one of them turns to me and says, like, shh, not so loud. You can't speak Spanish, which I thought was super strange. And then something like a few years later, going into a department store, I went to the salesperson and she was speaking to another salesperson in Spanish. And when I started speaking directly in Spanish, she switched to English. And I always wondered, you know, why do those interactions happen like that? And I guess one of the questions is, why do those things happen, especially living in a multilingual city? For example, I've also lived in Miami, which most people think, well, that's, there's Spanish speakers everywhere. And yeah, that's true. But I've also have those encounters. There's also issues of how a person is perceived. So for example, if I'm speaking to a person that may be from Puerto Rico, but I'm not perceived as being from that area, there might be a hesitancy for them to speak back to me in Spanish because I'm not part of like that specific community. So if I'm not perceived as such, for some people speaking a minority language, it's something that only takes place at home so when you're not in that space, they don't feel that protection, that security that they may have when they're at home or speaking to a friend. So there could be many things that can influence a person to sort of silence their sort of minority language. 
But then there are also some language policies in the U.S. that have taken place, like the English-only movement. For example, that was really big in the 80s when, when I was growing up here. That, that was always in the news, right? Like all these talks about like not using minority languages in public, at work, in school. While also growing up, there were a lot of propositions that citizens could vote on to eliminate or keep bilingual education. So all of these things uh, shape the way people feel about using a minority language in public. I myself, growing up in the 80s, I do remember that. But growing up in El Paso, I've heard Spanish my entire life. And one of the things I always tell people, like growing up in El Paso, I was the minority. Since this is an audio podcast, I look like a Swede. But when you are white living in El Paso, you're still the majority in a minority city. So you don't have that experience of being a minority. And so I don't know if a lot of people who are white in this country know what that feels like. And even in those instances where, like you're describing, if a white person does speak Spanish or is bilingual, they're seen as kind of like uh, in a really good light, whereas people who are bilingual from whose families are from minority languages or uh, from another country, right? They're kind of like punished for being bilingual. So there's that also that strong contradiction where there's a strong rhetoric in the U.S. for multilingualism and like how positive it is. But on the other hand, a lot of those communities that speak those minority languages are punished, are, are seen as sort of like threatening, changing sort of the dynamic, the cultural dynamic of the U.S. Absolutely correct. To me, one of the really great things about the U.S. is that as the years have gone by, and I say years and really centuries, it's become extremely diverse. And that's only a good thing because in the U.S. we're able to hopefully understand multiple perspectives, multiple ways from Argentina. Somebody from Argentina has a different perspective than somebody from Mexico. Again, all different perspectives to different cultural ideas, but we come together and just understand each other. Right. And, and that is the ideal. And I think that most people would agree with that, right? That like being multicultural, uh, understanding like the interconnections among nations, it's so important even for, for ourselves to be part of that global conversation. But at the same time, uh, bilingualism is so punished sometimes. And it's that contradiction again, it's not clear as to why. And also, if we look throughout history, and even in our current time, the majority of the world does speak more than one language. But here in the U.S., we're still considered a monolingual country. So why does that happen again, right? Even though we have these conversations about the importance of globalization, the interconnections, majority of the world is bilingual, but we don't necessarily see that as a positive here. It is curious, a product of the U.S. public education system. You know, I took two years of Spanish, again, lived right on the border, and I wasn't able to learn. But at the same time, the U.S. doesn't force you to learn because you go from state to state to state, and a good majority of people speak English and then have a second language or third language. Uh, versus if you're in Europe and you go from Spain and you speak Spanish and you go to France, you have a different language. 
you know, and that's literally just like an hour or two hour trip. And then you go another three hours and you're in Italy in a different language, maybe in South America, you know, with uh, Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese, where a lot of South America does speak Spanish, but Brazil, a huge country, speaks Portuguese. And so needing to know that to me would be a requirement, um, I, I guess. Yeah, in, in the, your specific example about Portuguese, unfortunately, it's not something that uh, it's taught widely throughout Latin America. And that's a shame because Brazil is such a large country, right? That with such influence culturally, socially, and economic, that it would benefit more Latin American countries to actually be able to speak the language. But it doesn't happen. And a lot of research has been done specifically about the U.S. and why the push for like English only has to do with this notion of the U.S. being an empire, that it has to protect like that sense of identity that it has, and it has been done through language. So one of the things that unites sort of this country and any territory that the U.S. may be interested in, right, it's going to unite them sort of like linguistically. When you've looked at that research as the U.S. as an empire, does that mean as like an economic empire or like kind of the old colonial type of empire view of it? It's the like a newer form of colonialism, right? Like an imperial nation, right? That extends not only its military power, but it could be its cultural power, socioeconomic power. And one of the ways that it can do this is also linguistically. Because of like its economic power that it has worldwide, it forces other nations to pick up English in order to be able to do business, commerce, and any sort of cultural exchange that you want to have has to happen in English. Whereas the empire being the U.S. doesn't think to itself that, oh, I also need to learn the languages of those countries that we are influencing. So th that is what I mean by empire, right? The sense of like the U.S. having these economic power that also translates to a cultural power and can also be like in a military sense. And that totally makes sense. And today we're speaking with Martin Ponti, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe quality education must be more affordable. That's why, as a leader in online higher education, we focus on minimizing costs and maximizing return on learner investment. And we believe higher education must be more accessible. So our online programs start every month. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Martin Ponti. And I really like what you talked about, about the American empire, because I don't know if a lot of, of Americans view this country as, quote, an empire, but as a, quote, superpower, that is an empire. And so there are policies, intentional and unintentional, that an economic and military power will have that directly impact people. So can you continue talking about the intentional and unintentional policies when it comes to English, English only, and has that changed over the few decades? Yes. I think just one last point about empire. Sometimes when students ask me, well, what is like some concrete example of the U.S. being an empire? Well, I think one of the easiest ways to demonstrate that is to find all of the military bases that are throughout the world. Like, do we consider other countries having military bases in the U.S.? I will probably say, no, there aren't any, because we are the empire. We have that sort of that power. 
This doesn't apply just to the U.S. If we think about Spain, right, at one point it was an empire. And how did it spread its empire, its wealth, its influence? It also did it through Spanish. And that's why now in Latin America, all of the nations except Brazil that Spain conquered speak Spanish because of that influence of empire. So yes, so there are multiple languages that have created this sense of empire through language. But just to move aside from like the concept of empire, I think there's other ways that we can think about why that contradiction exists in the U.S. And I think there's also have been a lot of research, so scientific research, that have really produced negative studies that show the dangers of bilingualism. And yes, these were probably very early in the early 20th century. The most famous one is by Sayre, published in 1923. Uh, and the title of, I think, that study was The Effects of Bilingualism on Intelligence, and his theory was that bilingualism really hurts people's development. It causes people to have lower IQ. And this scientific research, right, at that time, which was considered scientific, was very damaging for a lot of communities. And those studies have been replicated many times, sort of confirming that, that if you speak another language, you're not fully developed mentally, even though now with the science, we know that that's not the case. And one of the interesting things about Sayre's study was that his method, which was to give elementary school children an IQ test, but the IQ test was in the student's weaker second language. So, of course, if a student has not fully developed that second language, the one that they're weaker in, how can they really answer fully, right? How can that demonstrate their knowledge? And that just seems like bad science to me. Right. But at the time, it was like, oh, well, we gave an IQ test. And not only was the IQ test given to, to test on the weaker language, but they gave more than five different IQ tests for different groups. So the control group was really like not controlled at all, right? If you have different tests, that measure different items, you can't have like a consistent answer, right? A result uh, that's consistent. So there were many issues, many problems with his study, unfortunately, over time. It took a long time to discredit that. There's a lot of assumptions and beliefs, I'll say beliefs, that are, are false, but then people pass them on, they encounter them, and it's hard to change people's beliefs because sometimes they attach themselves to information that the community knows or expects or their local you know group and if they perceive themselves as being in the out group they'll avoid that at any cost unfortunately when in reality learning a different language only makes you more desirable yeah and and i think this speaks to perhaps our students listening right how the importance of doing research and being really careful about what you're doing because it can have a really long lasting effect on different communities not just on communities but the way we perceive things right it takes a long time many generations to change that it makes me think of 
Separate but equal, 1896, I believe is Plessy v. Ferguson, which then established separate but equal throughout all of the country. Again, you can literally point to laws that exist as far as that goes. But then when we talk about language, when the government tries to suppress speaking in a different language, it takes a while and it takes people to really own, well, in the past we did something wrong and we need to change it. And sometimes people are very hesitant to be like, no. I don't want to say that we did anything wrong in the past. When you're not the one who did it, it's okay. Let's all just move forward together. Yes, and I think to your point, I think what you're bringing up is this idea when things are institutionalized in a way in society, they have that lasting effect that even though sort of slavery ended because Jim Crow was institutionalized, and there, there are ways from preventing those changes happening. And again, it has a really long-lasting effect. This idea, this change from Sayre's original idea against bilingualism began to change in the 60s when more linguists began doing work in this area. They were kind of trying to replicate Sayre's ideas, and they kind of felt that it was the same thing, but they found something completely different when they studied bilingual children. And they didn't find big differences in their spatial reasoning. So bilingual children and monolingual children basically have similar spatial reasoning, but the big change, the big substantial difference they saw was in the way students' abilities for using logic and symbolic manipulation was a lot greater in bilingual students. And this study was carried out in Canada, in Montreal, where they had access to French and English-speaking students. And they were kind of like shocked about this kind of idea of, oh, well, for logic and symbolic manipulation, uh, we see a big difference. So it must not hurt someone's development if you can sort of show this scientifically. So that's, I think, one of the earlier studies that kind of created this shift. We're seeing it's not going to make your development slow down and really started looking in at sort of the metalinguistic abilities that bilingual versus monolingual students have. So that, that, that was an interesting shift there. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, any final words, Martin? Don't be against or afraid of opening up to bilingualism. There are many positive things like we associate now, like greater plasticity, uh, a lot of metacognitive benefits. So don't be afraid. And you can always start learning another language. It's, it's never too late. That's another myth. But we leave that for, for another talk. It's never too late. I agree. It's much like learning music. It's never too late. We can always do it even when we're... 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. We can always learn. The brain always adapts. Exactly. Well, thank you. And so today we're speaking with Martin Ponti about growing up bilingual. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU. American Public University.